Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcast for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. Hello. And today we have another Pharmaceutical Sciences podcast, but a podcast with a twist. Delighted to say I'm joined by our CEO, Paul Bennett, Director for Scotland, Claire Morrison. And we've got a very special guest today, Professor Jason Leach, who is National Clinical Director for Scotland. Jason, hello. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Gino. It's tricky to turn down a Claire Morrison invite. So that's how you end up with me here. I apologise. <laughs> I'll hand over to Paul Bennett, our CEO. Paul? Thanks very much. And Jason, absolutely fantastic to have you with us today for this podcast. I wonder if you could start us off by telling our members a little bit about you and your role in Scottish Government. Yeah, so that's a boring start, Paul, but let's try and make it sound more interesting than it actually is. So I'm I'm the National Clinical Director of the Scottish Government. So if you're English, the closest to me is probably Steve Powers, the National Medical Director. So we have three senior clinicians advising the First Minister in the Cabinet, the Chief Medical Officer, the Chief Nurse, and the National Clinical Director. And then we have another set of clinicians, one of whom is the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, the Chief Dental Officer, the Chief AHP Officer, and the Chief Midwife. So altogether, there's about seven of us. So in times past, when Sir Harry Burns was the Chief Medical Officer, some of the crowd may remember him, probably one of our most famous public health leaders, we split the role a little bit. So I ended up doing the quality of the delivery system, the outcomes, the compassion, all of that bit. And Harry, who was passionate about kids and public health and medical leadership, he did that bit. And that's how we ended up in this slightly hybrid version of the world. A bit like the English system, but England has NHS England and the government separate. We don't have that we have one big happy family trying to run the delivery system and run the policy. We see you very frequently on on the television because you are the go-to person, I think, to give us insight on on how Scottish Government is responding. And so that's really useful for those listening into today's podcast to to get an understanding of that context. So I'm going to hand over to Claire next. Hi, Jason. I saw you uh, last year present a driver diagram. I think it was written in March last year, which outlined the approach the Scottish government was going to take to tackle the COVID pandemic. Can you describe how that came about, what it says and and what the government's approach has since been? Claire, I'm I'm delighted you're in this relatively new role, but we do miss you on on the quality improvement calls across Scotland. A driver diagram, for those who, who don't understand it, is basically your system on a page. Imagine a flowchart with the aim of what you're trying to do on the far left. And then as you work your way to the right, you end up with expanding boxes of stuff that you will do in order to get to that aim. So if you're trying to reduce your weight, you might have two big boxes of calories in, calories out. Then have another five boxes that say, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to drink more water, I'm going to drink less wine, etc., etc. So... We use that quality improvement method or technique or tool to help us with any problem, whether we're trying to fix medicines reconciliation or fix stillbirths across the nation or if we're trying to respond to COVID. So it made perfect sense when you have a first minister who understands quality improvement, who was in the heart of our safety movement when she was the health secretary, to start to think about COVID in those terms. What are the drivers 
what are the buckets of things you have to do? So if, for example, your aim is to get COVID as low as you can for a 28-day period using incidents and positivity and all these things we've become familiar with, what do you have to do? Well, the government has to do some stuff. The health service has to do some stuff. People have to do some stuff. And then you need a broad coalition of actors and players in there from schools to criminal justice to the police service to all of those other bits. So we tried to outline what all those are and you end up with a list of tasks. So you have to do testing. You now have to add vaccination into that driver. You have to do test and protect, which is our version of test and trace in Scotland, where you self-isolate people with the disease or potentially with the disease. And you have to do border control. So you can make that as big as you like. It can end up on 26 pages. So we've tried to use that kind of thinking as a guide to how we then form our response across Scotland. So the quality improvement that you know and love, Claire, that you helped us with when you were redesigning some elements of the system in Scotland, we use that same methodology to help us think about what we would do for the COVID response. And I can't tell you, as someone with a background in improvement, how reassuring it was to see that right at the beginning and to see that that was how the approach was being developed. I'm going to hand over to Gino now to talk about the vaccine. Jason, your loss is very much our gain. Claire's been a great addition to the team. Let's talk about COVID vaccines. Can you update our members on your views about the COVID vaccine deployment in Scotland to date and what needs to be done to improve uptake? Well, I think the first thing we should say, Gino, that I have never known a faster and more evidence-based coalition. Just take every sector of the pharmaceutical industry first, from discovery to production to the private sector, right through to the delivery system, the procurement, the chief pharmaceutical officers of the four nations, right through to those who are actually then unpacking the vaccine with welder gloves on because the Pfizer one is so frozen solid. You've seen the YouTube videos of the poor pharmacists in Grampian who were the first to get our first delivery. And it honestly does look like just the worst hour of your life trying to get these things out. I choose pharmacy just because we are talking, but you could say the same for the scientists who are underpinning that, the immunologists, even the ethicists who have helped us decide who we should vaccinate and where. The summary answer to your question is it's going remarkably well. We've vaccinated 40% of our adult population in line with the other three UK countries. It's gone quicker than I expected, more smoothly than I expected. We've had bumps on the road, of course. We made slightly different choices at the beginning about speed and where we would go. We decided we would try with all our energy to get to the care homes first. Other countries did that slightly differently. It's not right or wrong. It's just decisions. Now we're all kind of aligning around a mid-April target for all of the top nine JCVI groups, which will get us 99% of the COVID mortality and get us more than half of the adult population done. And then we'll move into the under 50s and get them all done, we hope, by the end of July. Then, of course, we need those scientists as they are even today to start working on the next version because variants are now causing us considerable anxiety and we need the pharmaceutical community to help us stay ahead of whatever this virus becomes. We had Clive Dix, the Vaccine Task Force Chairman, giving the update uh, to the RPS. I don't know if they did this, you know, I don't know them particularly well. I mean, I've been in meetings with some of them occasionally. My layman's interpretation of what went so well for the UK is that mixture of private and public sector and the partnership that was put in place in order to make that happen. So the governments took on some of the risk 
while the private sector took on the manufacturing and the science and the trials. And then we used higher education institutions to build into that. So I think the UK put itself in pretty much a unique position, maybe except Israel, to be right at the front of the queue for that vaccine deployment when it came. And hopefully it's a model for the future. And talking about the future, Paul's now going to talk to you about what COVID could look like in the future as well. Thank you, Gino. Yeah, so a little bit of crystal ball gazing to an extent, I suppose, here, Jason. But I wonder if we could look at the next three years. And COVID's clearly going to be part of everyday clinical practice going forward, whether that is responding to people with acute COVID infection or those with long COVID. How do you think healthcare practitioners, including pharmacists, will need to respond to what is a really complex environment? Yeah, I'm not sure we know, Paul. Well, I actually do know we don't know. I think there are some things we do know and a lot of things we don't. So we're pretty sure that this virus is not going to disappear suddenly. We're not all going to wake up in the morning one day and a bit like War of the Worlds, the enemy will have died off. That doesn't seem likely. If you wanted to pray for something, then that would be the thing to pray for. But that seems unlikely. So therefore, most of the smart respiratory virus experts tell us that what will happen is it will become at some level endemic. Now, what endemic looks like is the debate. And that's playing out just now, even in the UK, even with me on the telly sometimes about, so do you want an endemic flu virus or do you want an endemic measles virus? Now, neither are right, of course, it's COVID and it's going to be different from those two. But the basic clinical argument there is how much are you willing to live with it and how much domestic normality are you willing to use as a cost to pay for it? Because if you want really, really low numbers, you're going to have to stay restricted for longer. So that's the Southeast Asian version of SARS reduction versus most of Western Europe's version of SARS reduction. And I'm not sure we're quite through that debate yet about what that means. It plays out most acutely when you think about international travel. So the UK government says that in England, you'll be able to fly overseas on the 17th of May. All being well, the data shows that. We have said you can't so far until the data suggests different. Cyprus have said you can go there on the 1st of May. So countries all over the world are finding this really, really hard. And that just indicates that we don't know that it's, that it's really difficult. I think where we'll end up is probably in some form of annual or biannual vaccination. We'll end up with some level of acute disease from this virus. So some people, the unvaccinated or those in whom the vaccine doesn't give full protection, which is a random sample of the population, will end up sick, and some of them will be very sick. I hope that will be small numbers. And we'll end up with a legacy of all the infections that we've had already, and on an ongoing basis, we'll have post-COVID syndrome or long COVID that we don't understand yet. We don't really know what the implications are for the individuals, never mind for the pharmacy section of the community or the doctor, the GPs or anybody else. So we're going to have to come to terms with that over the next little while. And we hope that it will be then manageable on an annual basis. Some scientists and some very mainstream scientists think the way to go is to think of it more like measles than an endemic respiratory virus and get it close to elimination if you possibly can. Keep the new variants out, get your national boundaries sorted so you get it really quite far down with vaccination and then you can get to your next normal. I don't know which of them is the final solution here, Paul. It's definitely complex an issue, isn't it? And it's going to require us all 
trying to pull together here and bring in what expertise and experience we can to combat this situation. The tricky thing here is we're playing it out on TV in real time. So normally you do that science in the background. You do it on slightly obscure journal pages or podcasts that pharmacists listen to. Forgive me. You don't you don't do it on BBC Breakfast because the whole world is dealing with this. We end up in this pandemic world where we're doing the science in real time. And one of the challenges of the communication has been to try and get that uncertainty across to the public because the public and the politicians and all of us, we seek certainty in our response. and We simply cannot give certainty. I know Gino's striving to get the same audience figures BBC Breakfast gets. Keep it up, Gino. He needs better guests. <laughs> I'm going to hand over to Claire now. Thank you. So I think what we have seen really very clearly is that the COVID pandemic has just exposed huge health inequalities. And within pharmacy, we're currently talking about what, what more can pharmacy do to help tackle this? So I'd be really interested to hear from you. What are the Scottish government priorities that you're planning to tackle in the next few years? It's a huge subject, isn't it? And COVID has just exposed all of that all over again. I mean, the single biggest protection against COVID is wealth. Whatever country you're in, you're less likely to get it. You're more likely to be able to self-isolate and deal with it if you do get it. And you're less likely to be sick if you're in a richer demographic. It's not universal. Some very rich people have died and some very poor people have survived. But in general terms, the poorer you are, the harder it is to deal with infectious disease, whether it's COVID or tuberculosis. And therefore, the long term challenge of inequalities in Scotland in particular, but in all European cities and towns and northern England and bits of East London, these things remain true. We have got a particular challenge in Scotland, particularly around Glasgow. And the regions around Glasgow, long term post-industrial change, of which my family are an example. My father was a coal miner, went to university the same time as me. We studied at the same dining room table while he did an OU degree and I did a dentistry degree. And he became an engineering lecturer. But that was very unusual. Most of those coal miners became unemployed and their kids became unemployed. So it's a long term generational problem. Now, the Scottish government would tell you that, that trying to tackle the early Reasons for that, we're doing a lot of work in early years, we're doing a lot of work in childcare, so improving free childcare for two-year-olds and above, we're talking about child payments. The health and social care system, of course, is part of that response. We've got a particular focus on drug deaths. Drug deaths is just the peak of the pyramid. There's all the drug harm that comes underneath that, and pharmacists are crucial both in the science to help us with that, but also in the delivery of how to solve that. So we need to really not leave a stone unturned. And Claire, you'll know that some of our quality improvement work is around exactly that. We started in schools and started to use some of these same techniques we've used in healthcare with aims and measures and changes to try and get kids to exercise more, to try and get kids to be able to read and count better, all of those things that we all know the schools are trying to do, but using quality improvement learned in healthcare to try and apply them across that early years to try and make Scotland the best place in the world to grow up. That's our slogan. Scotland, the best place in the world to grow up. And I know my own children have benefited from exactly that quality improvement work with the introduction of the Daily Mile and seeing that coming through. So, yeah, absolutely. The focus on the early years has has been clear um, and a lot more that we've all got to do. Terrific example, if people don't know it. The Daily Mile is a very, very simple thing that started in St. Ninian's Primary in Stirling. A head teacher just got irritated that the kids were too big 
and she just took them out for a run every day. Didn't put trainers on them, didn't change their uniforms. They just ran around the school for a mile. And uh, the kids got skinny, the teachers got skinny, and everybody got healthier. It was a fantastic innovation. And then it started to spread to other schools. And what we did with QI, they had the intervention. They had already this kernel of an idea. All we did was lend a little bit of a scale-up mechanism to them to allow that to spread. And now pretty much every primary school in the country does it. It started in secondary schools. It's gone to other parts of the world. North Carolina now does it in every school. Other parts of England have taken it on. It's just the simplest little intervention in the world. But it's so, so powerful. It really is. And due to the very muddy playing field at my uh, kids' school, they've had to transform it over the winter into the daily skip when they all get a skipping rope to do on the hard platform. So there you are. Can I turn to well-being? Because the really important issue, I think, with COVID has been the impact on everyone's well-being. um, And that's the public and healthcare workers alike. And there are some great resources. Um, so the NHS Scotland Wellbeing Hub is just fantastic. But we know that healthcare workers aren't accessing it universally. Some are, absolutely, but not everybody is. I wonder what you think we should be doing to change the culture so that people do feel able to ask for help with their well-being. Yeah, I think there's layers in there, Claire, isn't there? There's the specialist end. So if people are in real trouble, then we need to make that very easy for them. And then there's the day-to-day grind of whatever it is you're doing, and we need to get better at that. Actually, and this may be a bit controversial here, I don't like singling out health and social care workers as being special. I think every one of them is special, but I tell you what, the supermarket workers have played a blinder, as have the teachers and the school staff and everybody else who's kept the country countries moving over the last year. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to health and social care workers. That's not my point. I think we should do it everywhere. There's a wonderful example from the Nightingale Hospital in London. So we had the Louisa Jordan, England had Nightingales. And the Nightingale at the XL in London had patients in the first wave. And they had a lot of staff come as volunteers, people who were working really long hours. It was tough old work. And they put out a call for volunteers to help and deal with well-being. And they got all the things you would expect. They got 4,000 lint bunnies and fizzy juice and all that. And that's terrific. And a coffee shop came and set up coffee outside the front door. So everybody got a free cappuccino when they arrived in the morning. Simple things like that were crucial. But the other thing they did was Virgin, the airline, most of their air stewards were on furlough. So they volunteered and they set up an airline gold lounge inside the XL without the booze, I'm led to believe, although I never actually visited to check if that was true. And when people came off their shift, they could go into this gold lounge that had been set up by Virgin Air. And it was snacks and chat and coffee. I mean, it was the simplest thing in the world. It cost almost nothing. But it made people feel as though they were part of something bigger. They were being looked after. And that kind of culture is not something we're particularly good at in pharmacy, in dentistry, in health and social care generally. I don't actually think we necessarily need more psychiatrists at the high end of burnout. We maybe do. That might be one thing. But actually, quite a lot of what people need is just to feel part of a team, to feel that the culture is supportive, to feel if they need that help, there is a button they can press that will get them that help. But actually just sitting somewhere chatting to your pals is one of the most important things we could offer. I think you're absolutely right. There is really something about that support and that network of people that you can turn to for support before it escalates into needing more professional help. Um, I'm going to hand back to Paul now. 
Thank you, Claire. My privilege here is to draw our, our interview with you, Jason, towards, sadly, its close. I just wanted to carry on that theme of well-being. We've all been challenged during this extended period of lockdown and so forth and grappling with various issues during the pandemic. How have you been looking after your own well-being during the pandemic? It's a good question. The first thing to say in a non-patronising way is there's a lot of people working a lot harder than me, Paul. I've got purpose. I've got a job that pays me a salary. I've got central heating. I've got a supportive wife and family and I get paid if I have to self-isolate. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well, to be honest. But the job is intense. There isn't any doubt about that. I'm in rooms that I never thought I'd be in, certainly not with the frequency I'm in them. And cabinet meetings aren't without anxiety and stress and preparing for them. So there's not been many days off. And it's pretty intense to get to the decision making points for the decision makers when we give that advice. So I've always been very well supported by mum and dad and a sister and a wife. And they are still kicking the legs from under me every time I get ideas above my station. I'm from North Lanarkshire. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to grow too high there and quite right too. The other thing, I've tried to eat well. I enjoy my bed. So I think the great public health crisis of our time is probably lack of sleep. So I sleep eight hours a night and I'm pretty precious about it. And I run 5K every day. So I try and run every day. We moved house in lockdown because we didn't have much else to do. It was pretty quiet you know, in between lockdowns, to be clear, and before anybody says I broke the rules. And uh, I live quite near the park. So I can do three laps of the park. 5K takes me too long because I'm a middle-aged, slightly overweight guy. But I've tried to keep that in perspective and tried to do that. And I've also got a fantastic team of people surrounding me, some of whom Claire knows, who do quite a lot of the prep for me. I'm very well supported before I go on the telly or on the radio or appear before a parliamentary committee. And then I have to just do the front facing piece of it. Jason, I really appreciate you sharing that. And can I say a big thank you for not mentioning the Calcutta Cup at the start of this conversation or any way throughout it? Because I've been trying to spend my energies on watching rugby rather than running 5Ks. And I'm going to hand you back to Gino. Thank you, Paul. We just want to thank you very much on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you again to the whole pharmaceutical community for everything you've done to get us to this point in the pandemic. We're not out of it yet, so more to do. And uh, maybe I look forward to returning when we're out the other end. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.